Today's reading is taken from Genesis uh, chapters 10 and 11. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's son, who, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magon, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose elder brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a, a few years ago, Catherine and I decided we were going to go on holiday to Paris. This was before we moved to Hong Kong, and it was a much shorter flight then. I had about a week more holiday allowance to use than Catherine did, and so I thought I'd go out a week early, and I'd get settled, I'd get used to it, and then I'd show Catherine around Paris when she was able to join me a week later. I had taken a couple years of French in high school. I had taken a couple years in university, and so I was feeling quite confident that I could navigate this city. and. I thought I'd brush up on my language skills and really impress Catherine when she arrived. So as I rode there on the train, I, I refreshed some of that key vocabulary. I, I thought I'd ask uh, for directions and, and order food and all those sorts of things. And, and so I brushed up on that. And I thought maybe after a few days, I'd be indistinguishable from a local French person. Right? I, I could just blend into the, the crowd and nobody would be any the wiser that there was this American amongst them. Maybe I'd even wear a beret, uh, or maybe not. But uh, when I arrived, it was a completely different story. See, uh, Google Maps, it got me to my accommodation where I checked in in English, and then I, I dumped my luggage and went out to explore the city on that first day. I had arrived in the morning, and, and I had the whole day ahead of me. And so I walked for hours, kind of enjoying the, the sights and the smells and, and all of the, the joy of Paris, but then it came to be lunchtime. 
And I had spent that time walking, talking to precisely no one, and maybe reading a few signs here or there. And as I strolled by the, the boulangeries and the cafes and, and looked at their menus, I just couldn't bring myself to go in and actually order because there was a, a burning embarrassment that came over me that I'm not going to be able to, to say what I need to say rightly as I go into these places. And my stomach, it was growling and, and yet I couldn't um, get over feeling flustered. After all, I know that the, the French, they don't particularly like to speak English, even when they can. And so I didn't want to feel that, that shame as I went in. I kept exploring. I decided to skip lunch. So I spent the next several hours walking around the city. By this point, it, it had been seven or eight hours of just walking about with no food and no drink, and it came to be dinner time. I was so hungry, I was literally shaking uh, by dinner time. I mean, who starves in the middle of Paris, right, with all of these pastries and, and cheeses and things to enjoy? But there I was, until finally I was desperate enough, and, and finally I spotted an Amer a, a, a hamburger shop, which was just American enough that I thought maybe maybe I can manage this. And so I went in and I mustered up my courage and I said, you know, the je voudrais acheter un hamburger and uh, uh, frites. I think I even said frites. And, um, you know, I felt, okay, I, I've done it. And the, the woman at the, the register smiled and in perfect English said, would you like a drink with that? And I, I, I don't know how she knew that I wasn't a native speaker, but... Um, I wasn't going to give up that easily. I said, no. And um, <laughs> so then I, I scurried away with my hamburger and fries and uh, was a little dehydrated, but there I went because I didn't want to, to have to, to say anything else. But over the week, I got better. Uh, overall, it was an extremely humbling experience. Maybe you have had a similar experience. Maybe you have a similar experience in Hong Kong if you don't speak Chinese sometimes, um, maybe that is a, um, a feeling you have. Being in a foreign culture without any language skills makes you feel isolated and vulnerable and very much on the outside of things. But according to the Bible, that is not how it always was. Look again at verse 1, and we see that at the beginning, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. For some generations after the flood, there was one humanity, one common language, one culture. And what a, what a joy it must have been when everybody spoke American English. Or maybe you think they spoke uh, Cantonese or, or uh, Tagalog or, or whatever it might be. But as nice as that thought may be, we have been seeing that throughout Genesis 5 to 11, it hasn't been uh, the glory days of humanity. Far from it, actually. The story of these chapters is a story of humanity's rebellion against God at every stage along the way. At every stage, they try to establish life in this world uh, apart from God and establish their independence from the Creator at every stage of the story. And they've entered a downward spiral of sin, uh, of violence, and ultimately of death. 
the overarching point is that humanity is, is um, without hope in this world apart from a hope given by God. That's the point of these chapters. Despite our protest, God must intervene to save. And in verse 2, we have a clue that uh, this story about the Tower of Babel is part of that same pattern of of sin and and rebellion that we've been seeing over these chapters. And and we see that hint in verse 2. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. The clue is in that, that little word, eastward. That's how we know that things are not going to suddenly start getting better here. Because throughout these early chapters of Genesis, whatever people, uh, whenever people have been rebelling against God, they, they've tried to distance themselves from him and, and find independence in the east. So when Adam and Eve, they sin, they get cast out of the garden, they go east. When Cain kills Abel and, and uh, it goes off into exile, he settles in the land of Nod, which is in the east of Eden. And so there's this progressive movement, east, east, east. And so now, as uh, we see the descendants of Noah descending out of the mountains of um, Ararat, where, where they landed, into the plains of Shinar, this migration eastward hints that they too are seeking independence from God. And the, the first thing that we have to, to see in these verses is the astonishing arrogance of humanity. And what are they doing that's so bad here, we might ask? Well, remember, after the flood, God had commanded Noah and his descendants, uh, go forth and multiply, fill the earth. Right? That's the, the, the blessing that he gave to them. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth in chapter 9. The idea was that God would reserve further judgment, preserve humanity who could repopulate the now empty world, and that he would uh, make them flourish. God's command was a blessing for them. Go, enjoy the fullness of everything that's now yours. But rather than obediently doing what God commands, they decide, uh, well, we're going to, to go our own way, do our own thing. And they forego the blessing in order to Uh, band together and settle in one valley. They would exchange the riches of the whole earth for the poverty of one valley in Shinar. That's um, the site of ancient Babylon and of modern-day Iraq, in case you were wondering. It is an irrational thing to do, uh, to to forego the blessing and, and to settle in this one valley, but that is always what sin is like. It's always an irrational move to go our own way apart from God. It always convinces us to exchange God's blessings for worthless trinkets. And in verses 3 and 4, we're put right in the boardroom, the, the planning meeting, as this venture is taking off. And we see both their their method and their goal in building this new civilization. First, their method in verse 3. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and and tar for mortar. The the phrasing of the Hebrew there is 
is it giving a sense of excitement, like, uh, come on, guys, we're, we're going to do this thing. Let's build back better. Let's make humanity great again. This is our big project. This is where we're going to stamp our names on history here. And the proposal is a great construction project that's going to unite all of humanity. And the, it, it's going to use these new man-made technologies kiln-fired bricks. You could make many more of them much more easily than you could get stones to build things. And so this was a great advance. We're going to use our kiln-fired bricks. And tar, or what we might call asphalt, it, it um, hardens much more quickly than cement. It allows you to build much more quickly than mortar. And so long before the northern metropolis, long before the Belt and Road Initiative, there was this original infrastructure project that would unite humanity and secure a future for the people. But what was their goal in all of this? Well, here in verse 4 is the key. I think it's the key to the, this whole passage. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And as we read that, we might think, well, what's wrong with that? They're working together. You know, this is the sort of thing that we dream about, isn't it? Collective humanity coming together to achieve something on a global scale. Think of all that could be achieved if we would just work together. This is the dream of the, the UN. Isn't it? Here it is, a, a common humanity, a common goal, but the key issue is that their motivation is one of collective human arrogance in defiance of God. And that's shown in, in these two phrases, a tower that reaches to the heavens. Uh, from our perspective, that's an audacious project, right? A, a skyscraper. Even still today, if you have a lot of money and want to make a name for yourself in a city, you build a, a giant skyscraper. But in the context of Genesis, it was positively blasphemous. Because you'll remember in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, and he put humanity on earth, under the heavens, to rule earth under his authority. Heaven, in contrast, is the dwelling place for God. It's his home. And so when humanity says to itself, let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens, it's effectively saying, let's storm the heavens. Let's storm the place of God's dwelling and overthrow him. Let's establish ourselves by force as the rulers. Let's usurp God's authority. And then there's the second phrase, so that we may make a name for ourselves. And you remember at creation, as God created the world, he named it. So uh, the darkness he called night and the, the light he called morning or, or daytime. Uh, he made humanity in his image and he named them uh, man and woman. He gave humanity authority over the, the earth and he told Adam, go and name all the animals. Naming in Genesis is a, 
is an action of authority. And humanity, here, in the Valley of Shinar, is setting up the first humanist civilization that they say we have authority to name ourselves. We have the authority to determine our own identity, our own purpose, our own importance, our own legacy apart from the Creator. And so we see the key problem here is not uh, uh, the project of city building per se. That's not a problem. It isn't that working together is bad, and it's not that ambition is wrong. Someone could misread this and think, well, the Bible's just against all human progress. Uh, That's not what it's saying. According to the Bible, God has given humanity ingenuity and gifts necessary to develop the the technologies that we need to, to progress and to make great advances. But what the author of Genesis is condemning, and what we need to see, is the the collective arrogance of humanity that uses all that God has given, all the gifts and the abilities and the materials, in defiance of God. It says, we'll have this stuff, but not you, God. And you see the almost comedic foolishness of their project as they're, they're in the planning stages here. Before they even start, you can see the irony of that final phrase in verse 4. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And, and so while they're hyping one another up, while they're saying, uh, we're going to achieve all of this, this massive project of uh, throwing God out of his heaven and stamping our name on this earth, well, they're at the same time fearfully holding on to each other, saying, I, I'm not going to be able to do it by myself. Don't go out there alone. Let's stick together so that we can do this. Their astounding arrogance mixed with a kind of extraordinary insecurity right at the beginning. And that combination, I think, is typical of every human project to to, um, establish our name apart from God. You know, once your eyes are open to this, You will see it everywhere, in every sort of endeavor. Collective arrogance and insecurity everywhere. It's been the story of human civilization throughout history. I mean, the Tower of Babel, it obviously is identified with Babylon. And Babylon was that great city and empire. Throughout the Bible, Babylon is the kind of, the the paradigm, the, the... picture of human arrogance. It was at the pinnacle of political achievement. It was at the pinnacle of cultural achievement. The, the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the great seven wonder, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was at the pinnacle of technology. In its maps that it made for itself uh, of the world, where do you suppose Babylon was? Well, at the center, of course, Babylon was the center of the universe, according to Babylon. Astonishing arrogance. But then, in the end, in a matter of months, it fell to the Persian Empire. So astonishing arrogance on the one hand and complete insecurity on the other hand. 
And we still find that mixture everywhere, where we see uh, attempts to unite people through politics, through culture, through technology, all without reference to God. It's the spirit of the, the Tower of Babel alive and well in the 21st century. Now, what is God's response to an outright rebellion like that? It is to mercifully frustrate humanity. And that's the second thing to see in this. God's frustrating mercy. For all the arrogant claims that humanity made about itself and its ambitious project to, to storm the heavens, to establish an everlasting name, the Lord has to come down with his, his microscope to even search out what's going on. We, we see that in verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the, the city and, and the tower the people were building. It's anthropomorphic language. It's talking about God in human terms, but it, I think it's designed to make us laugh at the idea that um, from a human perspective, this is an astonishing feat where uh, they're going to establish themselves, and yet from God's perspective, it's barely visible. He has to kind of get down like in your garden with an anthill, right? And kneel down and look very closely. What is all this fuss about? What's going on? Oh, yeah, would you look at that? That, that, that little tower and a, a city as well. Oh, cute. Right? That, that's God's response to human arrogance. Cute. And seeing their rejection of his commands to go and fill the earth, seeing their arrogant pretensions, how does God respond? Verse 6, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. We already know he's not impressed with the scale of this. So in other words, God is saying, if this atrocity that humanity has begun to do, if this is what they've begun to do, there's no end to the wickedness that they'll plan and carry out together. You see, God had given humanity amazing gifts, and by working together we can achieve so much. Now, think of the scientific advances. This week, a vaccine for malaria. We can achieve so much. Medical treatments and technological wonders of the last century. Think about all those things. But due to our sin, those gifts left unchecked will always tend toward evil. So we split the atom, an amazing feat. And then we create a nuclear bomb to destroy. We develop cameras. And then we create a surveillance state to oppress. We invent the internet, and then we subject our, our children to the destructive uh, mental health effects of it. You see, everything we create tends towards our own destruction and bad, our own um, downfall. And so just as human evil that preceded the flood built up to such a point that God had to do something about it, he had to judge, now 
humanity after the flood is already developing in that same way, and God has already promised he's not going to destroy and to judge in that same sort of way. And so what God does next shouldn't be seen as mean-spirited. It should be seen as merciful. He frustrates our capacity for evil. And he introduces division. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scatters them, scattered them from their city all over the earth and they stopped building the city. All their excited planning came to an immediate stop. I, I, visited, um, I visited Rhodes in 2010, I think, and you could see all of these um, big developments and buildings that had just stopped when the financial crisis of 2008 hit. Just half-completed buildings on all the hillsides and uh, along the seafront. They just packed up their tools and went home because there was no more money. And that's the sense that we get uh, from this, uh, the phrasing here in Genesis. The sense that it is in the middle of building this vast city and tower, well, the workmen, they couldn't coordinate anymore. And the supervisors, they couldn't instruct anymore. And there was great confusion. And so they just gave up. They just left. They were scattered. In the end, humanity was forced to do exactly what they feared doing, exactly what they said uh, we don't want to do. They were forced to do. They spread out and filled the earth. And that was exactly the way that God promised to bless them. And I think what is true at the, at the level of world history, I, I think that's true at the level of the individual too the level of, of your life and of mine. I think that God very often will frustrate our arrogant plans for ourselves. He will very often stop us dead in our tracks and frustrate us. And that will be the means he uses to bless us. So, so we carve out an identity for ourselves. We struggle to establish our, our ambitious projects and, and to control our future. But then life is completely and unexpectedly knocked off track. And the sudden job loss and, and the sudden illness and the sudden divorce and the, and the pandemic, it takes the wind out of our sails and we're left in confusion. And when all our plans are frustrated, when there's nowhere left to turn, we have no other choice but to obey God and to turn to Him. And so that moment of utter confusion and chaos becomes the defining moment of our lives as we find a new direction under God's uh, leadership. As we are confronted with the futility of human attempts to make a name for ourselves, we're forced to look to the Lord for our security, for our, our purpose, for our identity. 
and he offers that in abundance. You know, the very next chapter of Genesis, if, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you'll know chapter 12 is a turning point in the book as God begins to address Abraham, right? So the, the story has gone from the creation of the universe and over the first 11 chapters, all of humanity and down in chapter 12 to Abraham. And what are God's first words to Abraham? Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Humanity cannot make a name for itself. But God gives his people a name. Humanity, they, we cannot secure a lasting blessing for ourselves. But God gives an eternal blessing to his people. He gives it. They don't earn it. Humanity can't achieve unity across every linguistic, ethnic, and national boundary. Every attempt at that will be frustrated. But God can create one new humanity out of all the peoples of the earth. Every tribe and nation and tongue will be brought in to his church and into eternity. The story of Genesis 5 to 11 is a story of how pointless it is for humanity to attempt to secure blessings for ourselves apart from our Creator. But the story as Genesis continues and into the, the whole rest of the Bible, from chapter 12 of Genesis onward, is of how God graciously, repeatedly, tirelessly blesses His people. And how Despite our rebellion, he rewards us with eternity. And all the promises that God makes to Abraham to give him a name, to make him a people, to give him an eternal blessing, all those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills all of those. He gives all of those to anyone who will turn to him and follow him. And so maybe this series in, in these chapters, it's felt like a slog. And week after week, there's been another picture of how we can't save ourselves. And in a sense, that's the point. Life apart from God, life apart from uh, living for Him, walking with Him, is a slog that ends in frustration and despair. But a life lived with Him and for Him one that cannot fail to end in blessing. That's life with God. And next week we are going to enter into a whole different part of the Bible, the book of Colossians. And we're going to see how great the benefits are, how glorious the blessings are in the Lord Jesus Christ for every Christian person. We're going to spend... Uh, many weeks in that. So don't despair, or do despair if you're apart from God, but turn to Him and find His blessing.
Let's pray. Father, we confess that in our arrogance we are often trying to establish a name for ourselves, trying to control things, trying to walk our own way. And we thank you that you frustrate that, that you frustrate us, that you bring us to a place where we, uh, we must turn to you to find uh, any sense. Please, if there are any here who are in states of confusion and um, despair, would you raise their eyes to the Lord Jesus and give them a, a renewed sense of purpose, of identity, of hope, of security. And I pray that each one of us might go this week, see through the lies of human arrogance and see the truth of our, our need of you and your blessings to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.